Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative and creative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet these people through my work in ranch brokerage and land conservation, or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, pretty much anyone who's doing important work and has an interesting story to tell. My guest today is Christian Beckwith. Christian is the director of SHIFT, a Jackson Hole-based nonprofit that's building a powerful coalition to protect our nation's public lands. By bringing together climbers, skiers, hunters, anglers, land managers, and countless other stakeholders, SHIFT is finding common ground and harnessing these groups' collective power to ensure that public lands, which are our birthright as Americans, remain safe during this tenuous time in political history. After a distinguished career in the publishing world, which included editing the American Alpine Journal and co-founding Alpinist Magazine, Christian experienced a profound change in priorities when one of his close friends was killed by an avalanche in the Teton backcountry. At that point, Christian decided to focus his resources and energy exclusively on work that makes a meaningful difference in the world. From there, he founded the Center for Jackson Hole, Shift, and most recently, the Emerging Leaders Program which brings together a diverse group of early career leaders in conservation. Christian's career is inspiring in many ways, but I especially admire his willingness to set audacious goals, put himself on the line, and not wait around for permission to make things happen. We dig into all these topics in our hour-long conversation, and he shares some interesting insights into his career and the future of land conservation. We also discuss Christian's early childhood experiences that led him to a career focused on adventure in the outdoors, and he talks about his relationship with Yvonne Chouinard and how Chouinard has influenced him both personally and professionally. We chat about Christian's favorite books, documentaries, and also how fatherhood has focused his thinking on the importance of land conservation for future generations. There's a full list of topics we discussed in the episode notes, so be sure to check those out. Given the current fight surrounding our public lands, this is a timely and powerful episode. I hope this conversation spurs you to continue educating yourself on threats to our public lands and to also take appropriate action to protect them. Hope you enjoy. When you meet somebody for the first time and they ask you the question, what do you do? How do you answer that? <laughs> You're going to stop me on the first, on the first one. Um, <clears throat> well, I'm the executive director of the Center for Jackson Hall, which has two main programs, both of which work toward one shared objective, which is to leverage outdoor recreation for conservation gains. Mm -hmm. We have an annual festival in this year, it'll be November 1st through the 3rd, that pulls together outdoor recreationists, land managers, conservationists, and youth engagement advocates. Yep. To develop a collective impact model that allows us to protect these places that we love so much for all the various reasons more effectively than we've done in the past. <clears throat> what we're up against is um, a very divided political landscape. Mm -hmm. And what we believe is that the stakeholder coalition of folks that love these places and want to protect them in perpetuity is much stronger than the typical American political landscape would suggest. We believe it represents 60 to 70% of Americans. So that shift in the autumn, we pull together hunters and anglers and climbers like me, skiers, and folks like Tamur Ahmed from the Wilderness Society who is one of our emerging leaders this year, and conservationists and um, land managers to figure out how we can work together to protect these places. Because if we are all behind this idea that these places must be preserved in perpetuity, then we're much stronger working to, together to protect them. So another, the other component of our work is focused on ensuring that that coalition of folks is actually strong enough to succeed. <clears throat> and the biggest gap that we see right now is that it's pretty much all white all the time. Mm -hmm. It's not all white all the time. It's increasingly diverse 
81 to 2% of Americans live in urban areas. We'll have a minority majority country by 2045. And yet um, the, the typical, the usual suspects that are engaged in this sort of work are all gringo. You know, we're all Caucasian. Yeah. Uh, that just breaks down. You, if you don't have a constituency of people that look like America invested in these places, then we're not going to be strong enough to protect them. So we've developed something called the Emerging Leaders Program that addresses that major gap. And what we do is we bring folks that actually represent all America to Jackson in the autumn. <clears throat> and we partner with the Teton Science Schools. We've developed a curriculum that prepares them for substantive conversations on the topics under consideration. So last year they were the public land transfer movement and funding for public lands and cultural engagement. And we train them to plug into the proceedings at shift in such a way that they can influence the conversations that occur. I think um, Audrey Peterman said it really well. Um, she's a gal with the um, Diverse Environmental Leaders Speakers Bureau. Uh -huh. and, uh, garbage in, garbage out. If you have the same conversations again and again with the same people again and again, and expect different results, you're crazy. <laughs> garbage in, garbage out. And so what we're trying to change is the variable of the folks participating in the conversation. And with the Emerging Leaders Program, we work with organizations around the country to bring in the young men and women who have come up through their ranks, up through their programs, and distinguish themselves. We take um, those folks that they nominate, and then we put them through our evaluation process. And the end result is a concise, focused cohort of young men and women from around America who are white and black and Latino and Native American and from urban areas and from the east and from the the Southwest and everywhere in between. And we plug them into the conversations here and it changes because it's not the same old white men having the same old conversations again and again, expecting yep. different results. So those are, those are the two main programs that we do with the Center for Jackson Hole. Got it. And that's a, that's a great overview. And, and, I want to get into your background more later on, but you know, you did not come from the nonprofit world. You came from the outdoor recreation and publishing and journalism world. And so how, how did you come up with this idea or what was the genesis of, of the idea for this, this program? Boy, <clears throat> how much time you got? As long as you want, man. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I had been in publishing for, a number of years and the bottom fell out of the traditional print world some time ago um at least in the you know the standard way to make a living was not as viable as it had been so when the publication i was doing got caught up in the um economic collapse of 2007 i did my best read of the tea leaves and figured that social media was probably a good way to go if I wanted to stay in media. And so I developed a, um, a website called Outer Local, and it was social media for adventure athletes. Yep. Just focused on all the various things that we love to do out there. The tagline was sports that can kill you and the people who love them. <laughs> and we tried to bring um, some sort of depth to a medium that is inherently fleeting. Yes and tried to capture stories, even long form when possible. And so I'd been doing that for, I think, a, um, a couple of years. And one of the things that I found was that the stories that generated the most traffic were my own. Um, and I was very, I was skiing actively. I was trying to do new routes here in the Tetons, ski mountaineering routes. And, um, 
when I wrote about them, they would generate a lot of traffic. And the way that social works is, you know, the more impressions you have, the more money you're going to make. And so I kept writing about them and I kept doing them. And I was charging around with a, um, a very dear friend um, named Jared Spackman. And in the winter of 2013, we'd been charging and we'd found a um, this place that it remains one of my favorite mountains in the Tetons called Prospectors. And we'd been hitting a bunch of new lines all winter long. Mm-hmm. And it was the most fun I think I've ever had in my life. I felt like a you know, kid, you know, 15-year-old kid just discovering girls for the first time. <laughs> <clears throat> and um, I was writing a lot about it as well. And, you know, there was a there was a feedback loop there where I'd write about it. We'd get a lot more impressions. And um, so it, it was self-perpetuating to a degree. Sure. And March 1st, 2013, we embarked on um, this one line that had caught our attention. It was audacious and crazy and scary and all these other things. And um, we were going to try to ski it. And we did something that we've never done before, which is go up a couloir called the Apocalypse. And nobody in their right minds goes up the Apocalypse. Um, I'd actually written about it the preceding week because we'd been poking around there a lot. And um, it's a long story, but um, I have since come to believe that Jared invited me into that day and that particular couloir for for a reason. And we got about uh, 1,500 feet up, and he said to me something like, it's so pretty, and I just remember looking around, and there was an ocean of clouds at the valley floor, and Sleeping Indian was poking out from across the valley and <clears throat> it was gorgeous and he was taking it all in and I took it all in and then put my head back down and started climbing again and about five minutes later I heard him say um, I don't know what he said uh, here it comes or here comes one and I looked up and about 150 feet above me there was a wall of snow about um, 50 feet wide and probably about, I don't know, five to seven inches tall wow. that was coming down at us. And so we were in the, um, the bed surface, the couloir is steep enough that it self-regulates. And um, I crabbed left as fast as I could. And my... I'm bad at math. So my wife helped me with math. If it was 150 feet above us and it was moving at 50 miles an hour, I had 1.879 seconds to get out of the way. So I think I got like three or four steps. And um, just as I was, I got up out of the bed surface onto the shoulder and a step or two to the left of that. And then um, what you do when you get hit by spindrift avalanches is you just hunker down, you stick your head in and hold on tight. <clears throat> As I was doing that, I looked over to my right, and um, Jared was still in the uh, in the bed surface, and he had a snowboard on. Mm-hmm. And um, I had just a split second of seeing him, and the snow was almost completely covering him. Um, his back—I could see his back. I could see the snowboard, and then I just put my tools in, hunker down, and uh, it hit us for however long, I don't know, three or five seconds or something, and um, it stopped, and I looked up, and it wasn't, it was over, and I looked to the right where Jared had been, and he was gone, and um, so uh, long story short, I, it took some, it, I figured it took me about 10 minutes to transition and ski the couloir, we were above the crux, and get down to where he was. And he was face down, and um, I tried CPR for a bit, and it uh, didn't work. Um, and he was dead, and he was gone. Oh, man. Um, 
And uh, I had about, I don't know, two or three hours before the Rangers got there. So I, I skied him down to a spot where the Rangers could get to. And, um, and I just thought about what was going on in the world and, and what I was doing. And, you know, we'd had a daughter. and um, How old was she at the time? I think she was two. Oof. And I I just determined that then and there that I didn't want to do anything anymore that didn't actually make a substantive difference to the world. And um, so that's sort of how I got in the emotional space to transition out of what I'd done for 20 years, which was first and foremost climbing and, and climbing publishing and then also adventure sports in general to something more um, substantive. Sure. And a local organization called the Travel and Tourism Board had put out a, um, a query for somebody who could put together an event in October in Jackson that worked with something that's very central to Jackson's identity, which is conservation. And build it into an annual event that would bring people to town. And what they were concerned about was addressing the precipitous drop-off in visitation at Jackson over the in the in the autumn. And when I when that day was done, I decided to go for it and um, got the job. And just started to try to figure out the landscape and the value that I could add um, by doing this event. And um, I didn't actually care about bringing people to Jackson in October. I actually really liked the fact that in October we get our town back. (laughs) But I'm really concerned about the state of the world. And, um, you know, I'm teaching my daughter to ski and I'm quite aware of the fact that she's probably not going to be skiing by the time she's my age because of climate change. Sure. So pretty quickly, I um, came back to the board and said, look, it's got to be a triple bottom line approach. Um, We can do something that achieves your objectives, but we've got to make sure that it advances the interests of our community and the interests of the planet as well. And so... um, over the course of it's been what three we've had three full events so far um we've evolved into what we are today which is a a, an annual event that looks at this intersection of conservation and outdoor recreation and climbing has given me everything that i believe in everything that i care about and so my primary objective objective is to honor um, what I've received over these years with from climbing and from the community of people that are my my tribe and my friends and use it to contribute to what I see as the biggest challenge that we're up against. And what we're up against is the sixth mass extinction. Mm-hmm. Um, losing species at a thousand times faster than we have in past extinction events. And one of the major reasons for it is the lack of uh, value that people see in nature these days. We don't value it. And we're increasingly disconnected from it on a, on a daily basis. All our screen time, all our time inside. Uh, the fact that kids are getting more screen time and less outdoor time every passing year i think now what what was the last i saw i think we get on average seven minutes outside per day and seven hours in front of screens that's disturbing yeah and if i think about my own life i have a hell of a lot more than that i mean i work in front of a computer all day i'm checking the weather first thing in the morning and you know as often as not in the evenings i'm on the computer as well um as this plays out over the course of um, time and as it plays out over the country, across the country, we're increasingly disconnected from the thing that is most important, and that's the health and well-being 
of the natural world. So the only way to avert the, to avoid the, the worst of the six mass extinction that I can think of is try to develop more empathy for the natural world, try to develop a, a deeper sense of um, love for it first and foremost. And for me, that means climbing and skiing. <laughs> That's how I've fallen in love. So anytime we can try to encourage more people to fall in love with these places, we're in a better position as a result to protect them. You're not, you're not going to fight for anything you don't love. Yep. So outdoor recreation for me is it's the gateway. I don't know how else to get people to fall in love with places. So we use outdoor recreation as this vehicle to engage people in the health and well-being of lands and waters, appreciation for wildlife. And we try to leverage that to develop a coalition of stakeholders who are broad enough and strong enough to make it political suicide to advocate for things that undermine the health and well-being of these places. And what we're seeing right now is madness as far as I can tell. Yeah. Can you give a little overview for people? I'm sure everybody has a general idea about this, what's going on with public lands now, but could you just give a brief overview of, of how you see the situation and, and how it's playing out? Boy, <clears throat> well, that's a good question. And it's, it's pretty early on in the administration in the new administration. And so we're not exactly sure how it's going to play out. But indications are that some things that have historically been great tools that can be used to protect places, such as the Antiquities Act, are coming under assault. That designations of national monuments that were um, made in the last days of the Obama administration are there will be an attempt to roll them back, that there will be continued defunding of land management agencies, which are charged with managing these places, that there will be a continued push to transfer public lands from federal management to state management. And while that might have merit um, in certain cases around the country, depending on where and who the players are, we believe that overall public lands are an American birthright. They're an American responsibility and they belong in public hands. So what we're trying to address is what we believe to be these administrative priorities that would take from Americans what is their birthright. And that's this public land heritage undermine the tools and institutions that have been central to the creation of public lands and to the management of public lands. Once those lands are gone, they're gone. We're not getting them back. And I'm in Wyoming. We're in the bust of a ongoing boom-bust cycle. Extraction is falling apart and we have a lot of public lands. We're looking for economic engines in the state that are different than what we've used in the past. And um, maybe if you're a legislator out of Gillette and you're looking at public lands and you're watching an economic shortfall, why wouldn't you try to sell it to a developer who might be able to get you know, we might be able to squeeze a few million dollars out of it short term. Yeah. But that's a one off and you're never going to get it back. And what we believe is these lands, particularly in this day and age, when the six masses extinction is unfolding before our eyes, these are the cornerstones of our planet. And I don't know how to get off this planet and find another one that has what this place has. I actually really like <laughs> this place has. I, I, I love, I love my mountains. I love skiing. I love the wildlands of Wyoming. I love traveling a lot around the world and going into different places and experiencing 
just this gorgeous abundance of of nature wherever I can find it. And um, to see it under assault, to see it being um, so adversely affected in such a compressed period of time, it's it's traumatic. And I, I, I weep for my daughter because I know that she will not have the abundance that we have today. How how much did your perspective on conservation change when she was born? Was it was that just a, a very very abrupt and and seismic shift for you, or or was it just kind of more the same? You've always had that mindset. I think I've always had it to a degree, <clears throat> but having a kid certainly puts a um, a spotlight on the fragility of this balance between man and land. Mm-hmm. When I was doing Alpinist, I, I, had, I started a climbing publication in 2001 called Alpinist, and um, we documented the climbs from around the world. One and of the it, best publications of any kind ever, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You want me to write the, track, the check directly? <laughs> we'll work that out when we stop recording. <laughs> I always used to advocate for responsibility. We always have to take care of the places that we love. And as climbers, we love... You know, our crags, our wildlands, our mountains. And so I'd always advocated for that um, stewardship. But I think when Soleil was born, um, just the knowledge that she'll inherit something that's so less robust than what I what I enjoy today. Um, it, that scares me. I mean, she's the thing. She's the person I care most about in this world. Mm-hmm. And um, just watching the world degrade in front of our eyes and recognizing that I'm part and parcel of it. I mean, I've got this lifestyle that's I live in Jackson, Wyoming, not a, not exactly a uh, um, easy place to live in in the wintertime, for example. And it's remote. You got to drive to get here. You have to import a lot of food. I mean, there's a huge carbon footprint. So I'm, I'm part of the problem, too. Trying to reconcile the reality of American life, I'm probably not going to be able to change it too much um, with the realities of what I can change. That's an ongoing um, exercise and she's my motivation. Yeah. I, when we were talking the other day, I mentioned I've got a 19 month old and it's just amazing how it shifts your perspective or maybe, maybe concentrates it more. Um, and you hear people say that and it sounds like a cliche, but it's, as far as I can tell, it's a hundred percent true. Um, one, one other question I had for you about this is you seem to be very focused on solutions and collaboration. And do you see any, I wouldn't say easy, but, but kind of obvious ways that outdoor recreation could collaborate with say oil and gas or, or with some group that, that, doesn't really seem like their interests are aligned with recreation, but eventually I, w- I think they're going to have to collaborate in some way or work together in some way. W- what are your thoughts on that and, and any potential solutions you see for, for those groups to work together? Well, <clears throat> I haven't cracked that nut yet. <laughs> yeah, I don't think anybody has, but it's uh, that's a tough one. Mm-hmm. Where we've been focusing for now is low hanging fruit. And the this challenge to our public lands has created enormous opportunities for my side of the fence of outdoor recreation to work in collaboration with hunters and anglers, for example, um, who historically have been the country's, arguably the country's strongest conservationists who contribute $750 million a year each year in uh, license fees and taxes for conservation work around the country and who are the strongest proponents of our public lands. Working with them is natural and yet historically it hasn't happened. And if we're going to build a coalition that is diverse and representative of all Americans and cuts across party lines, then hunting and angling is a, um, it's a slam dunk. They're, they're natural allies. We both care about the same things. So that's where we've been focusing over the course of the last couple of years. 
how do we work more closely with communities like the hunting and angling communities when historically they haven't exactly been walking arm in arm with, for example, the Sierra Club. Mm-hmm. But they're essentially after the same objectives. And if we can put aside differences, focus on common objectives, can we create a coalition strong enough to succeed? That's where we've been focusing um, recently. Perhaps we'll get to hunting and uh, or to um, oil and gas at some point down the road, but we haven't quite got there yet. Yeah, well, I think that's a very, very wise strategy you've taken because I've thought that for years. I've thought, you know, there's this huge overlap between recreation, you know, say, you know, climbing, mountain biking, um, hiking, and then the hunting and, and angling. But for some reason, those groups seem to have been at odds. And so that's one of the things that I, I find so attractive about what you're doing is you're, you're focusing on the overlap between the two groups versus the, the differences. And um, it sounds like you've had, had some great success and you got good momentum with it. So I, I think that's just, I think that's great. Um, one question I've been asking everybody that I've interviewed is if you had to define the word conservation, because it, it means a lot of different things to different people, but you, if, if you had to just define it, how would you define that word? <laughs> Well, I just go with Aldo Leopold's definition from the land ethic, 1936, and it's a balanced relationship between man and land. Yeah, you can't beat that. That's pretty concise. Sure. Do you have any conservation mentors or heroes, you know, people either that are around now or people you've read about from history that have have influenced your thinking on conservation that other people could check out and, and learn more about? Well, my um, <clears throat> my hero is Yvonne Chouinard. That's what I was just thinking when you were talking about the the footprint that you have, and that it's you know you're as an American, you know you're using a lot of resources, and I, I it sounded very similar to what I've heard Chouinard say, and um, I love that guy. Why do you like him so much? Well, number one, he picked up my uh, he picked up the phone in in nineteen ninety. For when I called, really, <laughs> and uh, I just moved to Jackson, and I had opened up the phone book and found his name and dialed him up, and he answered. And I wanted to start a climbing club in Jackson in the Tetons, inspired by. I started climbing over in Wales, and they have a very strong climbing community, very strong climbing tradition. I moved to Jackson, and uh, here are the Tetons, which are the baddest ass mountains that I'd ever seen in my life and blew my mind. And I knew there were all these guides and photographers and artists and these characters. And yet there was no real community center. And so I started something called the wayward mountaineers. And, um, as part of it started a magazine and it was just getting going with this idea. And I knew about Yvonne and, um, so I called him up and babbled something that a 24-year-old or whatever I was at that time would say to his hero on the phone. <laughs> and he said, well, come on out for a beer. And um, so I got in the car and I, I drove up to his house and um, met with him. And he, um, I told him this idea that I had of starting a magazine. And he said... Oh, don't do that. That's way too much work. (laughs) All you should do is just photocopy a bunch of pages, staple them together, and hand them out to your friends. Otherwise, it's just too much work. And I was absolutely crushed that my hero, who had accomplished so much in life, the clean climbing revolution, founding Patagonia, which had protection of of our places as part of its DNA, that this man had told me not to do what I (laughs) was doing. And, um... So I, I went home and did it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what well, gave you the confidence to do that? I mean, wh- why do you think you went against what your hero would say? Or, or even at age 24, what gave you the confidence to, to give him a call and think that he'd want to talk to you? I think I'm too stupid to know <laughs> that I can't do things. <laughs> and I'm too stubborn to give up. 
Those are the only two real attributes I have is stupidity and stubbornness. <laughs> well, I think they've worked out well for you. I mean, I think, uh, that, that I told you when we spoke the other day that I, I kind of followed your career from afar. And, uh, one of the things I've admired is that you, you, you don't wait for permission, which I think is a, that's a great attribute to have. Some might think so. <laughs> My wife doesn't always agree. Well, yeah, I mean, I think I think Yvonne Chouinard is a perfect example of just not waiting for permission. He's going to do what he wants to do, and and probably go against uh, advice of people who are supposed to be in the know. You know, like their recent thing of of backing out of the OR um, mm -hmm. and and giving away all the money on on Black Friday. I'm sure he had a lot of bean counters telling him don't do that, and yeah. uh, he did it. Yeah, no, he's, he um, he navigates from an internal compass that is that stays true to what he believes to be the truth. And uh, not many people can say that. And, you know, when I finished up with um, the first issue of the Yodel, I ended up <laughs> driving it back up to his house. And I think I left it in a little bag on his, uh, on his door. And um, <clears throat> about six months later, H. Adams Carter, who had edited the American Alpine Journal for 36 years and made it the premier um, Climbing publication in the world, dropped dead at the breakfast table, and uh, Yvonne threw my name in the hat to edit the journal, and six months later, I was, yeah, I was the youngest editor in history of, of that publication. So he's always um, been very accessible and very supportive, and what I've really admired about him is he's he's so humble he's exceptionally well read he travels around the world and actually takes it in he's not a tourist mm -hmm. and he applies it to the world around him as he sees fit in in ways that will help to advance what he knows to be the truth you know we all know what we think to be the truth and um not many of us have the courage and conviction of those principles to move forward with what we know to be true. Um, and he's always done that. And, you know, one of the things that I, I have liked about him is if you call him a conservationist, it has to be with a recognition that it's entirely of his own making. He didn't go to school for conservation. He hasn't come up through any sort of regimented programs. He's created something entirely on his own as much in you know as much as any of us can do that and that's just been very inspiring i was uh i got to know this fellow <clears throat> named james wolfenson who was a house here he was president of the world bank for eight years mm -hmm. and i was surprised that he had never met yvonne so i i put together a lunch and um i went over to grab yvonne and um, you know, of course, he comes rolling up in the 1984 Toyota Corolla wagon that he's been driving since I've known him. Yeah. And um, he insists we get in that car. So we go cruising into Wolfenson's, you know, $30 million pad. <laughs> big gate made out of wood with a big W on it goes lifting up. And as we were driving, I, I said, Yvonne, what are you what are you doing now? And um, he said, ah, I've done everything I can with clothing. So food, I want to revolutionize how the world eats. He's <laughs> like 70, what, 70, 76 now? Uh-huh. Like that. And the fact that he has, he has a profound skepticism in our ability to get ourselves out of this fix. And at the same time, he continues to do everything in his power to help us get out of this fix. That's so incredibly inspiring to me. And um, yeah, it just, it, it, it just helped. It gives, it gives one courage to know that there are other folks out there that are navigating from their own convictions and doing the best they can with what they've got. It's almost as if you have to say to yourself, shit, if they're doing it, what's my excuse for not doing it? What, I have to do it. Mm -hmm. I, I think if you if you are aware of, what's going on in the world and you have an opportunity to do something to address what you see as challenges. You have a moral obligation to do that. 
And that's what Yvonne has always done. And I'm just profoundly grateful to the universe to ever have known the guy. And um, I've just always been so inspired by his willingness to go for it. Yeah, he is a he is a very inspiring guy. I've got a I've got a I call it the wall of badasses above my desk with different photos of, of different people that I admire. And he's, he's front and center there. I mean, he's just any, any way you look at it, he's just a, a admirable guy. And when, when you look, if I'm ever slacking off or messing around, I look up and see him staring at me. It gets my ass in gear real quick. <laughs> Get back to work. Yeah. yeah. Um, well to back it up a little bit, where did you grow up and, and what, did you have any experiences as a kid or as a child that you can point to that led you into this life of adventure and life of focused on conservation and focused on the outdoors? Well, um, I grew up in Maine. I'm a redneck farmer from mid coast mm -hmm. and we had a, um, we still have a fruit and vegetable farm. And we grow everything you can grow in Maine. And we sell it all at a in the one room schoolhouse of the town I grew up in. So it's called Schoolhouse Farm. <clears throat> and when I was eight, we had um, a, a fellow who came and lived with us for the summer to work on the farm. And he lived in a shack we called Tim's Hut down by the pond. And that summer he read me The Hobbit. And... It blew my mind. It was the first time anybody had ever read, read anything to me. And I just was immediately plunged into the world of Bilbo Baggins and hobbits and dragons and dwarves. And for the rest of that summer and subsequent summers, as I picked peas or pulled the corn bag alongside my dad or picked apples or hoed, I would be off in La La Land in Fantasyland dreaming about hobbits and dragons and dwarves and adventure because that was the whole point of that book was adventure and i've always had um i've always kind of lived loved living in the dirt um i fell in love with skiing early on and cut my teeth on the 450 vertical coming right out of the bay called the camden snowball so i learned how to ski ice mm -hmm. and um i think Going into the quote-unquote mountains of Maine, um, Saddleback and Sunday River before it became fancy and Sugarloaf, that really touched me. Um, those were the first mountains I really experienced. And they triggered the same sort of feelings that reading The Hobbit triggered in me, um, just that the allure of the unknown. So... I got into climbing when I was going to school in, in uh, England <clears throat> and immediately caught the bug. Just the very first climb I did, I just remember staggering out onto the top and felt as if I'd been reborn. And uh, I started dirtbagging it, and I was down in Waco Tanks, Texas, bouldering for a winter, and I read an article by Paul Gagne called Alpine rock, and it was about the Tetons. And that word, alpine, was akin to what The Hobbit was for me. It just triggered that desire to know what was, at that point, unknowable. And so I ended up sticking out my thumb <clears throat> one, um, one April in 93 or 4, I can't remember which, and I uh, just hitchhiked up, up here and I'll just never forget, it, the cloud cover was low, it was a very wet spring, barely ever saw the Tetons, but I could feel as I got closer and closer to this place, something I'd never felt before. And when we rolled in, I knew immediately that, in retrospect, I knew I was home. I didn't know what it was at that point, but I've just never wanted to leave. And... Um, I love this place so deeply and I love the Wyoming landscape that surrounds it that it's it just breaks my heart when I see it degraded and when I see the trees dying in the Tetons the way you see every single time you go up now 
the pine beetle kill is probably the most obvious indication of what's not in balance in the world. And um, it just honestly breaks my heart. It just breaks my heart. And uh, if you feel like you can do something, you sort of have to do something. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, so knowing what you know now, so you showed up in 94, so you've, what? God, that's hard to believe. That was 20, 23 years ago. Knowing yeah. what you know now, if you could go back and talk to that 22-year-old you when you showed up in the Valley, what advice would you give that guy? Huh. You know, I was talking to, uh, <clears throat> do you know Chris Tompkins? I, down at, yeah, not know. personally, but I, I definitely know who she is, yes. It was, I talked to her, uh, I think it was a a year or two ago, I was talking to her and, um, you know, we were just talking about the fragility of life. This is before Doug died. And so this is just for people who don't know, this is the wife of Doug Tompkins and Doug and Chris Tompkins have done an unbelievable amount of conservation work down in Patagonia and they founded the North face. And if you ever want to learn more about it, watch 180 South. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a great film that shows some of the work they've done. Yeah. And, you know, it's just, it's such an honor to even talk to people like that. Sure. But I just was, I remember talking to her about what we were up against and knowing the magnitude of what we're up against and um, what we had to do as a result. You know, and party, party, it looks up sometimes and you're just like, is it? I mean, how do you, <laughs> how do you avert the worst of the six mass extinction? That's, that's a big lift. Mm -hmm. And, um, I just remember her saying something about, I think I asked her the same question and she said something about, um, I tell myself to work harder, work harder. Mm -hmm. You just have to, and to go for it. And, um, don't ever be daunted by, um, your own fears or, or your sense of what's reasonable or where limitations should lie. And that's a more recent revelation was just watching a film by James Martin on um, the life of Doug Tompkins and the audacity with which they entered this country and began buying up these lands. And then the realization that they could create national parks was so terrific and so inspiring. And I've just been, you know, more recently thinking, um, that we can't, given the magnitude of what we're up against, we cannot do anything other than the most audacious thing we can create in our mind's eye. Because if we don't go big on this one, we're screwed. Mm -hmm. We are screwed. And what what's the worst that can happen? It's not like climbing. I mean, you fail in climbing and you die. We're not going to die trying to do something right. You, you're you're I humiliate myself on a regular basis. I feel like an ass 10 or 15 times a week. <laughs> but that's it. I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's certainly not fun. Um, but that, you know, I'm not going to die. And uh, what we're up against requires that we go for it. So one thing I've always liked about climbing is um, you never know exactly what you can pull off until you fall. You never know what you can pull off until you fall. Yep. And that's one point of hope for me is um, as a species, we don't know exactly what we can pull off until we fail trying. But we've got to fail trying and we've got to try. We have a moral, a moral responsibility to try. That's great advice. You should you should uh, you should write that down, and you should write a book first of all. I think I bet you will at some point. I would guess. Oh boy! <laughs> yeah, retirement. Um, well, I've got some kind of quick questions that I've asked all the different guests I've had on the podcast, and I've gotten some really interesting answers. So I'd like to run those by you real quick, and then I'll I'll stop taking up your whole day. Um, but again, I, I really appreciate your time on this. Um, the first question is. Do you have any favorite books that you have either recommended to others or just your your personal favorites related to the American West or really any subject? Sometimes a great notion. 
Ken Kesey. A lot of it took place in the uh, American Northwest. That was a pivotal book for me. Um, on the Road, <laughs> mm-hmm. classics of you know American literature. Um, and then you know pieces like War and Peace that uh, are just simply some of the best books. You know, War and Peace is the best book I've ever read. But do you, do you read primarily fiction or nonfiction or a good mix of both? I've been reduced to reading primarily The New Yorker. That's pretty good. If you've only got one, if you've got time for one publication a week, it's a, it's a pretty good way to stay current with a lot of what's going on in the world. I just, and, uh, I just read a book by a New Yorker author, um, Barbarian Days. It's about surfing. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, man, it was good. I mean, it's William just a, Finnegan, a right? yeah, just a work of art. The, the way that mm. how, how, the, the way that guy can write, it, it's almost like a, just some beautiful fiction, but it's nonfiction and it's this memoir. And, um, I just couldn't, could not believe it's a bet. I'd say it's one of the top three books I've ever read. Wow. And it made me want to, want to, I need to focus on the New Yorker more because if, if the other authors in their own par with them, which they are, it's, it's worth mm-hmm. reading. They have a, uh, a remarkable stable of writers. Um, do you have any favorite documentaries or films that have been important in your life? Hmm. There was one I watched uh, a couple of years ago that I was pretty inspiring called Supermensch. I've heard about that. I actually just heard an interview with the guy. What's the guy's name? Um, I can't remember. Yeah. I'll put, I'll put links to everything on the webpage, but, um, God, what was his name? Yeah, I've heard that that is great. Mm-hmm. What did you like about it? Well, I think, you know, similar to Yvonne, he just not ever let fear get in the way of going for it. Mm-hmm. And life had unfolded like some epic fable for him as a direct result. Yeah, I need to check that one out. I've heard great things about it. Um, so you're you're obviously a hardcore mountaineer, skier, general adventurer are there any activities you participate in that would be surprising to the people listening to this like do you like to knit or anything like that (laughs) i haven't got there yet i've been working (laughs) on my uh my fingernail painting activities with my daughter yeah that's a good one uh she's kind of forced us to um scale it back a little bit she's six and so in the spring we go down to the desert and um it's gotten us into um, canyoneering, oh, something that's great. with a six-year-old, just traveling these incredible fissures in the earth and uh, squeezing your way through slot corridors and slot chimneys has been a really cool addition to um, my understanding of the American landscape. I think, you know, if you're a climber, you end up with what we call climber's blinders on, and you just go where there's climbing. And I've done that for an awful lot of years. So it's been really fun to, um, see the landscape from about three feet high and try to reimagine it from that perspective. Sure. Um, what would you say is the most powerful experience you've had in the outdoors? And you may have actually already answered this, um, with your, with your, um, story about your, your pal, Jared. Um, but are there, it could be a, a scary experience, a funny experience, just a, whatever you consider powerful um, experience that you've had in the outdoors? Well, when I was uh, 20, maybe 20, um, 1990, and I was going to school in England and um, decided that I had a crazy Brazilian friend and we decided to hitchhike to uh, Turkey. And we made it as far as the Yugoslavian border, what was then Yugoslavia, and we got caught in a uh, blizzard and a um, guy in a BMW, a smuggled BMW, he was trying to um, smuggle into Austria and sell at a profit, had picked us up right on the Austrian border and then brought us in, brought us past the house, the home he hadn't been to in about, I think, six years. And I just remember we went around this long, sweeping, snow-covered bend in the road and that BMW just went straight into the guardrail. <laughs> 
and uh, my it came to a stop after spinning you know 10 times and um my buddy and i got out and uh sort of said well sorry thanks for the ride it wasn't very much we could do at that point and just kept going and um couldn't get into we couldn't get into yugoslavia the next day because the passes were closed so we had to take a train and on the train were three strippers from seattle (laughs) for 20 somethings uh, they were pretty much catnip and we ended up, uh, falling in with them. And I fell in love with one of them. I was with her for uh, a couple of years. And um, we all as a group decided to go up to Mount Olympus and um, started out in a little town called Litohoro and then hiked up. And so we came to a bombed out monastery that had been destroyed during the war. And everybody grabbed one of their own rooms and built fires in the rooms and did whatever one does with young strippers. <laughs> I just remember coming out of out of that room late at night and walked over to outside, walked to the cistern to get some water. And the stars were above and they were reflected in the cistern waters. And there was all this litter on the ground. And as I... Um, put my water bottle into the into the cistern I felt a some immense force just rolled through me and just ripped me asunder and I just began sobbing and sobbing and I had no idea I had no idea why I was crying um and it was the most powerful experience I think I've ever had in my life <clears throat> And when I walked out of there the next day, I was not the same as I'd been when I walked in. And I've spent the rest of my life trying to figure out why I was crying. And I think is, is the best I've been able to do is I was so distraught at the trash and litter and just how that was what we were doing to the world. And... I think in that that quest to understand exactly what had moved through me and what why I was crying, um, I've come to where I am today. That's really cool. That's a uh, and I imagine you'll probably be figuring that out in one way or another for the rest of your life, you know. But it, it seems like it seems like it was kind of the, the the genesis of your whole career. Really, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So next to the last question, if you can make a request of the people listening to this podcast, and basically they're just people that love the American West, whether that's through recreation or ranching or art, um, architecture, just just anybody who's got a real passion for the West and loves it. If you can make a request of them, what would that be? Never let a good crisis go to waste. Mm -hmm. What we're seeing right now is the biggest opportunity to get shit done than I've seen in my life. And I think we've got um, an opportunity before us to define what we consider to be sacred and to fight for it. And if we don't, then we're ignoring what is really our moral responsibility as people to this place that we love. At least, you know, I know I love this place and I know that you love it. so get active. We have to now. We have to. And we've never had an opportunity like this in our lives. I agree with all that. Um, so how can people connect with you, learn more about you, learn more about Shift? Uh, we can go to our website. It's shiftjh, like Jackson Hole, mm-hmm. .org. And that gives a good overview of the work that we're doing. Um, I don't know how else you find people these days. I'm sure I'm in the phone book somewhere. <laughs> All right. Well, that was great, Christian. I, I really appreciate it. And keep up the good work, man. I, I really admire what you're doing. Ed, great talking to you. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, 
share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me, and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading, or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, you can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.